Epigenealogy, providing research services to trace your family's health history. Your family history might be one of the strongest influences on your own health risks for many types of disease. With knowledge, you have the most to gain from lifestyle changes and health screenings. Visit their website at epigenealogy.com to get started on your journey of identifying your family's health risks. Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this March 2014 episode of the podcast, we're going to focus on genealogy solutions, and we will kick things off with the news from the blogosphere, where Diane Haddad will share six strategies that helped her solve genealogical problems. Then we're going to jump into the top tips segment to talk with author and instructor Jim Beidler about how to answer some of the toughest German research questions. Then in our 101 Best Website segment, we will dig into the Digital Public Library of America website, also known as the DPLA. It's a terrific place to uncover genealogical resources. In the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, we will solve the puzzle of constantly changing U.S. county boundaries with instructor David Frixell. And finally, we're going to head over to the publisher's desk to meet up with Allison Dolan, who's going to share some of her favorite research solutions from the book, Family Tree Problem Solver. There is a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the News in the Blogosphere with Diane Haddad. it's time once again to check in with the news from the blogosphere. And that's with Diane Haddad, editor at Family Tree Magazine. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. Um, In this episode, our theme is genealogy solutions. And boy, I loved your recent post called Genealogy Problem Solving, Six Strategies That Helped Me. And these are all great strategies that lots of people could use to uh, try to move things along in their research. Uh, what prompted the blog post? Well, I was just kind of, um, we had this webinar coming up about genealogy problem solving, and that just kind of got me thinking what are some things, um, different problems I've had in my research, and what was it, you know, the thing that, that helped me answer the question or solve the problem. And I think I probably could have come up with a couple more, <laughs> but I thought I have to get back to work now yeah. <laughs> and stop thinking exactly. about all my own genealogy problems. Well, you're lucky that your work is genealogy related. Let's run through them because you've got six here and they're all, I think, things that people could certainly make use of. Number one, you said tracing family and friends, aka cluster research. What do you mean by that? Right. By that, I mean, instead of just looking at the one focus ancestor, who's the subject of the problem, to look at their family. So in the example that I linked to here, it was an ancestor who I had found her divorce record, and the divorce record gave her maiden name, but I couldn't read the name in the record. It was handwritten. And um, 
So I also noticed that she had a sister named in that same divorce case. The sister was married, and I could read the husband's name in the records. So I traced that sister, and through her death record is how I found the sister's maiden name. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I mean, people are part of a cluster. So that makes total sense. Um, Mm -hmm. Number two, you had looking for alternate sources of missing information. And uh, I thought this was great. Tell us a little bit about this. Well, that um, the court records for my great grandfather's case, he was a bootlegger. And so the trial records are missing. And I've tried both sending a request and looking at the microfilm myself. And so I'm still hoping to one day discover this record. But I thought what other type of record would have that information. And newspapers are um, usually a good source of criminal, (laughs) criminal information about, you know, people who've done bad things. So um, I did happen to find several articles in the local newspaper that said different events that were going on with that case. So it wasn't, you know, quite the the detail that I wanted, but it did give me um, an idea of what was going on and when. Yeah, and it was a great example of not stopping just because the kind of more the official type of records that you normally would work with didn't have what you needed. Just keep moving and looking on the side and you've got a secondary source like a newspaper. Fantastic. Right. Uh, number three was using multiple sources for the same data. And um, this, I think, is something that we forget about because we'll find the record in a first source like Ancestry. And we don't realize that other sources could lead us to another copy of the same record, which sometimes is easier to read, right? Right. And a great example is the 1940 census. There were um, different organizations doing the indexing. So Family Search had um, one index going on. And then Ancestry.com had a completely separate company indexing. And I think MyHeritage even used a third way of indexing. So that's three different eyes, you know, three different groups looking at the same information. And they might have interpreted it differently. So if you can't find a 1940 census record in one of those sources, try a different one. Yeah, absolutely. Number four, formulating a theory. And I think this is something that sometimes genealogists shy away from because they kind of feel like, oh, the records need to lead me. But I agree with you. Tell us what you mean by formulating a theory. Well, the example that I used here was there were these two people in our family cemetery plot, and I didn't recognize their names. So I thought, um, I looked at their ages compared to the ages of the other people, and I thought, you know, who could they be? What you know, what could be the story here? And I thought, well, perhaps they're um, first sons from a first marriage of um, my my great-great-grandmother in this case, mm-hmm. and um, or great-great-great-grandmother. And um, so I formulated some steps based on that theory, and I'm pretty sure that that is the case. Well, and it makes sense. Because we know these people, we've been researching them. So who better to, you might as well follow kind of a logical scenario and see it through. You can always disprove it. But rather than just always a needle in a haystack. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, guessing what could happen lets you um, think about, well, what records would answer that question? Exactly. Leads you to the right records. Number five was researching a potential relative forward in time. And uh, you were hitting up against the 1890 census, which we know there's some problems with that. Mm -hmm. How did you tackle this? 
That is, um, it's a good way to try to tell whether a record is your ancestor. And in my case, I had someone who was born right after the 1890s or 1880 census. So she wasn't in that census. The 1890 census was gone. So the first census where she would appear, she was already a young woman, possibly not living with her family. And there was another family tree online where the person had found her, um, someone of that name in mm-hmm. a different place and had her with a different family than what I had already. So I researched that woman going forward in time and found out who her family was. And that person was, you know, in future censuses living in a completely different place from my third great grandmother. So I knew that, that they couldn't be the same person. Right. And I, and I, I think that it's so important to disprove as well as prove, right? Sometimes we forget mm-hmm. about the disproving part, but that can actually get something off your plate or really right. clarify what the actual issue is. And number six, keeping on keeping on. What does that mean? That's the hardest one because you always want to find the answer to the problem. But in some (laughs) cases, you just have to be patient and keep researching the person, not necessarily just trying to find that answer, but all kinds of other records. And you'll learn details that will help you. They'll give you a clue to, you know, the answer to that research problem you have, or you might learn, in my case, I learned that my um, great-grandfather, I learned clues to his original name that he immigrated under. And so that that would be helpful, and you say you're trying to find an immigration record for the person. If you can learn that original name, then, you know, you're going to, it'll give you that much more information so that you can identify them in the record. Yeah. I love the story that you give there um, about him and and the progression of determining his name. It's it's a wonderful story. And really, for those of you listening, if you haven't made it over to the Genealogy Insider blog yet, this is the post to go and read because it's fantastic. And we've just hit the highlights, these six strategies. But really, Diane gives you some details about how this plays out in her own research. And she scrolled to other posts where she's given even more detail It's a great kind of little educational tool on seeing these different strategies play out, which I think will help you to apply them to your own research. The post is called Genealogy Problem Solving, Six Strategies That Helped Me. And it was posted in February of 2014. I'm going to have a link directly to it in the show notes. Great ideas. Thank you so much, Diane. You're welcome. Providing research solutions can be a big job, and the Digital Public Library of America, which is one of our 101 best websites for tracing your family history, is striving to do just that. According to the National Archives press release that came out about it, the DPLA is a large-scale collaborative project across government, research institutions, museums, libraries, and archives to build a digital library platform to make America's cultural and scientific history free and publicly available anytime, anywhere, online through a single access point. Uh, it sounds like a big job, and here to tell us more about it is Dan Cohen, DPLA Executive Director. Hi, Dan. Hi there, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for joining us. I've been kind of following the DPLA, and certainly we wanted to get it onto our list because you're doing some exciting things over there. 
Um, I just read a mouthful from the National Archives about what you guys are trying to do over there. But tell us in your own words, what's happening at the DPLA? Yeah, well, I think the the easiest way to think about the Digital Public Library of America is that uh, we are really one-stop shopping. We uh, bring together the riches of America's libraries, archives, museums, cultural heritage sites. And I think um, if you look across the country, we are bringing together over a thousand institutions that have donated material to the DPLA. And we make it really easily searchable. Um, you can discover quite a, a lot on our site. We have all kinds of items on our site, ranging from uh, images, photographs, artwork, to documents, uh, books. We have over a million books. Um, and really unique uh, cultural heritage content um, from archives across the nation. So I think for your audience, it's a terrific place to begin any kind of research, uh, considering that we bring together so much from so many places. Oh, it sounds like it. And I noticed on the website that you guys talk about the fact that you really have different customers, if you will, the website. You've got end users, and then the libraries and the museums and the archives and even developers. We're kind of talking to the end users here. Um, when a, a genealogist comes to the DPLA, where do they start? Right. Well, we have a few different entry points into our very large collection, which is now uh, approaching 6 million items. And uh, so obviously that's a, a huge amount of information. We want to make it yeah. easy for end users like genealogists to make their way through such a large collection. So we do have a general search box. It works a lot like Google. You can type in any keyword and it will search again across all of these collections and provide you with thumbnail images of the items and uh, give you one-click access to those items. Again, everything on our site is open access, so uh, there are no gates at all. You'll find that uh, anyone who uses our site can read anything from anywhere uh, across the nation, which is really, I think, again, another uh, strong selling point. So we do have that Google-type search box, but we also have, I think, some really critical tools and, and really unique tools on the site that I think your users will find helpful. The one that is really popular that I think would be great for genealogists is that we have a map-based interface. So as many items as we can, as they come into the collection, we do what's called geocoding, which is we try to provide a latitude and longitude for the items where they originated. So let's say it's one of the over uh, 2,000 historical Bibles we have. Um, we try to actually locate where those are from and then pinpoint them on a map. And if you look at our map interface, you can zoom in to a specific town on the map and you'll find all the items that we have from that town regardless of where they originated from. So we have items, for instance, from rural Minnesota, a small town that I often bring up in my talks um, in rural Minnesota called Morris, Minnesota. And we have a few dozen items from that town, and they come from all these different collections from the National Archives, from the Smithsonian in Washington, but also from small local historical societies in Minnesota itself. So all of that is brought together in one place, and you can just zoom right into the map and find it. Um, so map-based interface, I think uh, your users and uh, um, readers will find really interesting. We also have a timeline that you can zoom back across time and go to a particular year and find all the material from that year. Um, so different ways in uh, to the collection. And I think depending on the user, different people like different uh, discovery methods, and we try to provide a variety of them uh, for our audience. Okay, now you sounded so calm, but I was pulling up the map while you were talking, and I was getting totally excited because 
This is the coolest thing ever. It's really, okay, it really is neat. I have to say. It is. If you're listening, you got to do this. You have to go to dp.la and then it's slash map, or you can just click map on the homepage. Now, I'm looking at Texas, 287,000 items to work That's with. That's right. <laughs> and, and it looks deceiving because at first it looks like, oh, there's one dot per state. But then you click on each one. And as you said, you can get closer to the towns of interest and more and more dots keep popping up. This is a fabulous way to help us visualize your collection. That's right. And um, it's not something you can really find in other places. If you go to Google, I think you'll your audience will understand that they'll get, um, you know, a set of 10 links and some text and maybe there'll be a little breakout box on the right side. But um, this map based interface is really you just can't find something like it anywhere else. So I think it's a great place uh, to start and to zoom in. I mean, almost literally down to the block level to find materials of interest. Exactly. And as you click the dots, then those, like, as you said, the, the items are going to pop up, the, the little thumbnails and things that give us a sense of what we're going to find there. That's right. There's, we actually have 10 levels of zoom. So you'll see a general map with these, as you noted, these big bubbles that have hundreds of thousands of items. But then as you zoom in further and further and further, those bubbles split apart into little um, areas, towns, again, block by block. Now, I have to ask, I don't see a search box on the map itself. So do I need to kind of know where this town is located and and find it myself by zooming in? Or can I somehow put the name of the town in? You can, in fact, put the name of the town into our general search box. And then once you get a a search results page, you can click on that little uh, push pin icon. And that will convert the search that you've done just in the general search area into a map-based interface. And usually that does, in fact, bring up, um, obviously, there are towns that are named the same thing across states. Right. But uh, if it's a very unique uh, town name, you'll see that there'll be a, a red dot with the number of items we have from that specific town. You should be able to zoom right in. And I just put in Winthrop, which is a little town in Minnesota, but I put MN for Minnesota, and sure enough, it just focused on that. Okay, I have to stop doing this because I'm supposed to be interviewing you. It is a, wow. it's a great uh, just browsing time sink, too, I have to say. And I, I am, a uh, by training, a historian, so um, I'm as excited about this as I think a lot of our audience members will be. Wonderful. Well... Okay, anything else, any other tips or tricks that we should keep in mind as we're working on the site? Sure. Well, one thing, again, that I'll, I'll come back to from when I uh, just started the podcast is that we have lots of different kinds of items. So we have tens of thousands of obituaries from uh, places like Georgia and Utah. We have Bible records that I mentioned. We have genealogy periodicals. So you mentioned Texas, um, which has several hundred thousand items from Texas, but we have 400 genealogy periodicals from Texas that you can search completely openly, uh, make your way through. We have hundreds of thousands of newspaper records, um, clippings, indices, and um, I think one really neat thing that a lot of people don't find on our site, but I think your audience would find really interesting is we have city directories, over 2,000 of them from across the United States, directories of who lived in these various cities as well. We have oral histories, so it's not just uh, um, textual material. We actually have audio of nearly a 1,000 oral histories and so many other local histories. So, um, you know, over the past couple hundred years, there have been locally produced histories of small towns, counties, and cities that have been published. And so we actually have those books in 
art collection. And you can find those again if you search under a specific town name. So it's really a, a wide variety. As I like to say, um, we have the full range of human expression. And I think if you're doing genealogy, um, the, this variety of resources is really, really exciting. And that's interesting. I mean, the city directory is obviously is a wonderful resource for us. How do you pick your collection and how do you gain access to them? That's a great question. So we have what are called hubs, which are um, donating uh, large scale donating institutions across the country. And uh, we have two kinds of hubs. Uh, one are content hubs, which are big, big places like the Smithsonian and the National Archives and some very large universities um, and other institutions of that scale that donate directly to us with uh, hundreds of thousands of items. What's, I think, interesting for um, our audience today is we have what are called service hubs, which are state and regional-based hubs that act as like mini DPLAs in their area. So, for instance, in Minnesota, um, we have a, a hub called the Minnesota Digital Library, and they go around the state for us and collect local materials to be donated into our larger collection. And they help us in that they have local connections, they know how to um, update the what's called metadata or the descriptive information about all these items with um, important local uh, information. And so um, we rely on these service hubs in states and regions um, to help us out. And so all of our content is coming in through this sort of second layer of, of partners. And um, it's a great networked model. It works a lot like the internet in that we're not just this monolithic entity uh, here in Boston, Massachusetts. We're actually distributed across the country. And that's how we really get so much content from over, as I said, a thousand uh, different contributing institutions through these hubs. Absolutely. We've been talking to Dan Cohen of the Digital Public Library of America, the DPLA. You'll find them at dp.la. And Dan, thank you so much. I can see why you made the list. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's great to be on it. Thanks again. Would you like to be able to follow your family tree back to its roots in Bavaria, Baden, Prussia, Saxony, and beyond? German research has its unique set of challenges, and here to give us some tips for overcoming them is James Beidler. He is the author of the new book, Family Tree German Genealogy Guide. Hi, Jim. Hello there. How you doing? Doing great. Great to have you back on the show. And I'm actually really excited to talk to you about this because I have a lot of German roots and I know I have questions. I'm sure there are others out there listening that do as well. And you've just kind of written a great book that just attacks it from one end to the other, haven't you? Yes. uh, The Family Tree German Genealogy Guide is uh, fresh hot off the press. And uh, like, like you were saying, it's Many people have German ancestry. Uh, it is the the number one ethnicity in the United States. Wow. So that, that just hits a lot of people. What do you find is the biggest or, or most common obstacle that people face when they're trying to trace their German ancestors? Well, probably the number one thing that gives people cause is merely the fact uh, that they're going to encounter records in the German language. Uh, yeah. you know, that that will slow people down, but but yet what they they really have to look at it as a challenge and not an obstacle uh, because there there are ways you know um, um, 
a pretty limited vocabulary uh, can go very far in uh, in translating most of the records because a lot of them are written in, in templates. Uh, probably a little more uh, ambitious is the fact that, that handwritten records, like most of the church records, are written in a cursive script that's different. You know, the letters are shaped differently than we than we find in English. But I know in the book, you know, you address that, you kind of give us some examples. And I find as I'm looking through microfilm of records that very quickly, it's like your brain just kind of gets in tune with it. And you start to recognize the various letters. And like you said, the forms themselves, particularly in church records, tend to be in kind of a template so that they kind of follow a routine. Exactly. You know, once you, you know, kind of see what the what the template is, that will then help you pick out the words. And it, it almost becomes like a cipher. Uh, yeah. Where, you know, once you've figured out how the, how the F is shaped in that particular handwriting, and of course there are differences between one handwriting and another. Uh, but right. As soon as soon as you uh, get the cipher for that, well, then all the Fs appear. I, I when I've done a webinar in the past, I've referred to it as as uh, Wheel of Fortune meets German genealogy. You know, like okay, I want to I want to buy an F. Well, then you get two yeah. two Fs and and go you know go through the alphabet that way. Well, and that gets me thinking about newspapers because certainly church records, like you say, they're fairly uniform. They're repeating a lot of the same words. Um, and here in the U.S., of course, we turn to newspapers a lot. And I noticed that you address newspapers in the book. Now, obviously, that's going to be a bit more challenging. Are they worth the effort? How, how do you recommend that people tackle German newspapers? Well, well, first of all, if I if I could comment both on German American newspapers and and newspapers in Germany, the German language press, reflecting the fact that this is the the largest ethnicity, hundreds of newspapers through the 19th century and uh, into the early 20th century, uh, and and those those are worthless. Some of them are are becoming digitized as part of chronicling America. Uh, and and again, you know the things like like vital events, you know they'll be in a template, mm-hmm. and and other other articles. Well, you know you you might have to exhibit quite of a patience and and learn more vocabulary, uh, but you can also. A lot of times, if you can at least transcribe it into the German, then you can use something like Google Translate uh, to yes. and get it from from the German text into uh, into English. Uh, and then, as far as as far as uh, German newspapers in in Europe, German language newspapers in Europe. Not too many of those are digitized. Some are. What is actually uh, periodicals that are, are kind of like what we would call uh, legal digests. But in these legal digests, mm. a lot of times they talk about people who are emigrating, uh, you know, who are selling off their goods or have received permission to leave, you know, you know, uh, posting some type of legal notice, which uh, gives some names and gives some uh, some good data. So yeah, it definitely is is uh, worth attacking. Wonderful. Now, pinpointing the village of origin, of course, I know is very critical to German research. And I know in my case, I was really fortunate. My great grandfather, Sporowski, he wrote on his naturalization papers, you know, cotton. He was from K O T T E N. It was very clear and in more than one spot, but a lot of people aren't that lucky. What is your strategy that you recommend for? 
tackling that village of origin and figuring out what it was? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there are actually several different uh, methodologies depending on the time period, depending on uh, what type of of record you're looking at. But uh, to to generalize a little bit, yes, there are instances where uh, the name has come down to you intact, and that's kind of the gold standard. (laughs) Then then you just have the the problem of of finding that on the modern-day map, which sometimes... Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy. Other times, if it's an area of what was once Prussia, that's now Poland, and bears a Polish name, you have to go through a few a few steps. Uh, but the other possibilities is, yes, a name may have come down to you, but it may have become garbled in some way. Uh, right. And here, here, your first thing is learning some German phonetics, and we do go over over that in the book, the basics of that, and render it phonetically you know, how that phonetic name would be spelled in the original German. And that oftentimes oh. uh, unlocks, uh, you know, unlocks the, uh, the true name of the, uh, of the original village. And then when there are cases where no, no name at all has come down to you at all, well, the first thing is analyzing, you know, every record, American record that you can find about the immigrant, because you, 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 know, you never know where, where an immigrant origin uh, you know, might be mentioned in a, in a letter or uh, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. Failing that, then we, we use uh, Elizabeth Schoen Mill's fan principle, you know, uh, fr- friends, associates, and neighbors who palled around with your immigrant because because often uh, they did travel in packs that uh, another family from the from the same village in the old country they end up being neighbors in a in a city here in America. Yeah, exactly. We don't have to to think it's only based on our one individual. We can. Look at the cluster around them and see what clues there are. Those are great strategies. And, um, and it's amazing how when you really take the time to put those into action, one of them will pay off. Now, I know you dedicate a good part of the book to the history and the geography of Germany. Why is that so important? To German research? Well, uh, the concept of Germany as a nation is a rather young one. There was not a unified German state until 1871, the first time around. Prior to that, it was German-speaking states, some larger like Prussia and Austria, and many, many smaller ones. I mean, literally, at one time, more than a thousand uh, you know, sometimes no bigger than a than a, a little city state, and as a result, a lot of German uh, German records are locally based. Uh, for instance, while there is something titled a National Archives for Germany, it doesn't have the same type of records that our National Archives in America have. You really, really need to think local. Yeah, and I think. That's the key. It's that, you know, you're talking about if we understand the gyrations that a country has gone through over the decades and over the centuries, then you can pinpoint the time frame and address it from where it stood at that time, not how it is today, but how it stood at that time. I know for me, I have to look in Poland. 
you know, because they were, they were in Prussia at that time. And it's, it's a whole different thing. Um, fascinating. You've given us so many tips. I'm already excited to get back <laughs> to digging more into my German ancestors. And, and if you want some help and have, having Jim by your side as you're working on your line, he, he really does have some amazing and, and really helpful tools in this book. It's very thorough. It's called The Family Tree German Genealogy Guide. And Jim, thank you so much for helping us find our German ancestors. You're welcome. As the population proliferated in places your ancestors settled, counties were often cut into a collection of really confusing and chaotic pieces, you know, subdivided, renamed and rearranged, potentially wreaking havoc on your knowledge of where to look for records. And early settler ancestors might have lived in several different counties without ever having moved an inch. Well, in his presentation, Unpuzzling County Boundaries, David Frixell helped us figure out those shifting county boundaries and how to tell which county has the genealogy records that you're looking for. And David is here to share some tips from what is now an on-demand webinar. Hi, David. Hello. So good to have you back. This is a, a key topic, really, it, no matter where you're looking, and we're going to be talking mostly, you know, we're focusing on the US, but this is the same over in the UK, you know, county boundaries change. And um, I imagine that there are obviously some really good tools that you had a chance to talk about in the webinar. What online tool do you kind of turn to, to identify the county that holds the records that we're looking for? Well, there are a whole bunch of them, actually. Um, that we talk about. I think the you know the number one one that we go into the most depth with is the uh, atlas at the Newbury Library, which is just an amazing thing. And of course, it's amazing that it's free also. And we the the webinar really goes through how to get the most out of it because there's all kinds of different ways that it can sort of slice and dice the information. You're looking at it by county, by county sort of county origins, um, and you can even do some cool things on your computer uh, to do more with it. Exactly. Now we're talking about the Newberry Library. It has this Atlas of Historical County Boundaries. And uh, the website address, it's a little challenging. It's publications.newberry.org slash AHCBP. We'll have the direct link that gets you straight to the county boundaries map that they have there. But but this is a really neat resource. And from what I've seen, it has evolved over time. Because the, the website has evolved over time. We'll talk about that in a second. But talk about the, the whole concept of these county boundaries changing over time. We're talking well back from the first census on and, and obviously, when America became a country, there were far fewer counties at that time. And how does that impact? the genealogist as they do their research. Well, you're right. As you said, you could be having ancestors who didn't move an inch, and yet the county that they're in, and therefore the records, that, the place where those records would now be stored, um, could move dramatically. In the webinar, I used the example of North Carolina, just because I happen to have had North Carolina kin, and it has some of the most dramatic county boundaries. And if you look at it at the beginning of 1700, you know, there are a few little counties along the uh, the coastline, and then uh, it's all just kind of, you know, one big glob. But if you look at it after 1912, it's this little crazy, you know, quilt of tiny counties everywhere. Well, so, you know, I trace the genealogy, in effect, of a North Carolina county. And so one county, for example, um, it was Lee County, uh, was formed in 1907 from Chatham and Moore County, 
Well, then Moore County was formed in 1784 from Cumberland County, but Cumberland County was formed in 1754 <laughs> from Bladen, and Bladen in 1734 from New Hanover, wait, wait, and New Hanover in 1729 from Craven. Craven <sighs> had its own origins, and it was originally part of Bath County. You get the idea. I mean, it, if you imagine that you have records that could have been in any of those, and we look at what that actually would have meant. So, for example, uh, Cumberland County started having land records back in 1752, but Moore County was then formed in 1784. So there's like 32 years' worth of records that could be in, in effect, in the wrong county. Um, so you wonder, well, where are my ancestors' records? Well, they may not have moved, but the, you know, the county courthouse that affected them may indeed have moved uh, pretty dramatically. So we have to look at both pieces. We have to look at geographically, where is the ancestor living? And then we have to look at in the time frame, what time frame are they living there and establishing what is the county at that time? So like you say, an ancestor could have several different records actually in several different county courthouses based on what the county was at the time frame that you're looking for that particular record. It gets a little complicated. Exactly. When well, you think about all the different kinds of records and particularly, yeah. um, you, you know, if you start with land records, but then you've got probate records. And in a lot of places, vital records were fairly late to the party. And so those could be in the, what's the current county. And so, uh-huh. you know, oh, I found, you know, great-great-grandpa's birth certificate. Great. Why are none of his property records here? Well, you know, or the ancestors, they're all back where they were before. So it's, uh, it's a real, you know, puzzle. But if you understand the concept and then you use these tools we talk about, I mean, it becomes a little bit more straightforward to find, you know, where they where they were when and where the records are when. Right. Now, I know we only have a few minutes with you here on the podcast, but let's talk for a moment about this um, Atlas of Historical County Boundaries. When they go to the website, they're going to see a map, and it has all the different states. And while you can interact with the website, there's a really cool feature that kind of interacts with Google Earth, doesn't it? Tell us about that. Yes, it's, uh, there's a way, and we walked through it in the webinar, that you can download this special kind of file. It's called a KMZ file and then plug it into Google Earth on your computer, and you can zoom in and out, and then also zoom through time right on your own computer. Um, basically what it does is you're downloading the data from the Newberry Library site, and then you import it into Google Earth, and it's really simple. It sounds you know, sort of scary and complicated, but right. it's actually very easy. And then zoom, and it's like time travel on your computer. You, know, you can go back and forth, you can see the boundaries change, and you can that way really zoom in on you know, where your ancestor was and that place and see how the county boundaries kind of shift around them, um, you know, through time. So it's a, it's a very cool kind of high-tech, uh, you know, plaything, but also, of course, very practical. Exactly. So, you know, if you're more comfortable on the website, you can certainly use that and go to the website each time you're researching. But I love that feature of downloading the data through the KMZ file. And then I have it as part of my Google Earth program every time I open it. And I can, and it, what's really cool is it talks to the time slider, doesn't it? It actually interacts with the time slider that's built into Google Earth so that you can move the time slider to the right time frame and magically in front of your eyes, all of the counties will shift and the boundaries change and they will be um, surrounding your ancestor the way they were at that time frame. And what's really cool, of course, is that because you're working in Google Earth, not only do the county boundaries change, but the information that Google Earth has changes. Yes. And so it's like, oh, well, now I can understand why, 
you know, that's no longer part of that county because look how that changed. And, you know, the city's not there anymore and it's grown sideways and, you know, it's suburbs and all, all that sort of thing. So um, it really does give you the sense of time travel and let you understand, you know, what might have been happening uh, around where your ancestor lived, which really lets you think, oh, you know, maybe the land records did such and such or, um, you know, maybe the population shifted in this way. Um, it, it, putting it on the map that way really makes sense uh, a lot more. Well, and, it, and it allows you to visualize it. And I know for me, I'm a very visual person. That's just key. It makes my brain go, oh, okay, I get that. I see now kind of where I want to focus. Well, this is this is great. Um, again, the name of the on-demand webinar is Unpuzzling County Boundaries. So if you want to hear the whole thing, actually watch the whole thing, uh, you can head over to Shop Family Tree. We've got that. But David, thank you so much for introducing us to this idea that this is available to us. And everyone can uh, go straight from this podcast right over to the Newberry website and start checking it out. Thank you so much. it's time to check in at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Hey, it was great seeing you at Roots Tech. Did you have a good time? I had a great time. It was really good to see you too. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it gets bigger and better every year. And uh, boy, I, I don't think I even made it all the way through the exhibit hall. It was, <laughs> it was incredible, all the new technology solutions that were out there too. It was such a big show that there really wasn't enough time to cover all of the ground. I feel like I missed things too. Well, at least we got more to look for next year. <laughs> we'll look forward to all the, the, the stuff we didn't get to this year. And, um, you know, talking about kind of genealogy solutions, there were lots of them there. My gosh, all the classes, all the, the exhibits. But all year long, of course, we, we deal with our challenges. And our, our theme for this episode is genealogy solutions. And I, I know that's certainly something that you guys all focus on year round at Family Tree Magazine. I really like uh, Marsha Hoffman Rising's book, the, that Family Tree Problem Solver, which I don't know, I think is kind of a must read when you really get stuck. Would you agree with that? It's one that I refer to a lot, and I find myself coming back to. Um, and it's been popular with our audience, too. So I think that others must feel the same way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because there's times when we really need those fresh perspectives, and we could just get so buried in the challenges ahead of us. And do, do you have a, a favorite kind of um, tip or idea that she passes along in that book? Well, my favorite chapter in the book that I find myself coming back to a lot is called 10 mistakes not to make in your family research. Ah. It's just a really good reminder of you might be stuck, not because of a lack of records or a lack of information, but because you're just not looking at the bigger picture or, you know, you're kind of getting stuck in a bad habit, so to speak. Um, So I kind of come back to that a lot in terms of reminding myself of, how not to fall into those bad habits. Okay, so what are what are some of these bad habits that she's telling us that uh, <laughs> maybe we've gotten sucked into? Right. Well, to be fair, I think everybody makes mistakes in their research, mm-hmm. and that's how we learn for sure. You know, those mistakes are more valuable sometimes than the successes. But, um, you know, one mistake that I think it kind of makes me laugh every time I read it is continue to hang on to a good theory. (laughs) And, you know, I certainly have a tendency to, you know, get really stuck on one idea when I'm in the heat of my research and looking for um, that next lead. 
sometimes you can't find it because your theory was wrong <laughs> in the first place. So, um, you know, it's, it's important to question, um, your assumptions. And as Marsha points out in the book, sometimes you have to prune some perfectly wonderful people from the branches of your family tree. And some perfectly wonderful theories too. <laughs> That's so true. I mean, you do, you get kind of attached and you find some things that look suspiciously like they're supporting this idea, but in reality, you're not. And letting it go is just uh, sometimes what has to happen. I, I have to agree with that. What's the next one? Okay, so the next one is um, something really important for beginners to keep in mind. The mistake that people fall into is if the records conflict, you just come up with a good reason for the discrepancy. Explain it away. Yeah. And I think that's really a trap because errors occur in records all of the time. So sure, something could be wrong. The key is getting enough information to figure out why that discrepancy is there. There could be a very good reason for it, um, and you don't want to assume that the mistake is not actually the accurate part. You know, getting that information, um, the accurate information is critical and figuring, working through that with as much information as possible really helps figure out which is the right <laughs> material and uh -huh. which is the wrong. And maybe it's not as simple as right and wrong. Maybe it's a more complex picture than that. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we were talking to, with uh, Diane in the blogosphere segment about um, one of her ancestors and how the name appeared to be completely wrong. She totally overlooked it because it didn't line up with other things. But through the evolution of her research, she came to find out that was him. And there was a perfectly good uh -huh. reason and that the name he had multiple names and, and reasons for those names behind them. And it was like, and, and I could see how it'd be really tempting to go, oh, no, no, that just doesn't add up. But she said, all the roads led back there. And it's so true that there could be very good reasons, but we don't want to be making them up. <laughs> exactly. let, let the records tell us what the reasons are. Exactly. Marcia gives another example about um, a person being missing from tax rolls and a genealogist concluding that, well, the guy must have been exempt from taxes that year. And uh. is very certain that that's the case. But upon further research, um, she was able to conclude that he was living in a different place. And that's why he wasn't on the tax roll. Ah, uh, exactly. That makes, yeah, makes perfect sense. Fantastic. Okay, how about a third one? Absolutely. This is a pretty common mistake that people make. Again, going back to beginners, but I, I think even intermediate genealogists fall into this trap, too. It's keep looking for those magic documents. Because don't we all want to find the magic document that has the exact answer that we need? Yeah, as if there was just one that sums it all up. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's easy to feel that way. You know, you see some of the commercials yes. and, and they talk about, oh, I found this and I just opened up this whole new thing. Well, that can happen, but more likely it's going to be a combination a combination of information or, you know, sometimes there is not a magic document that tells you the exact thing you need to know. Sometimes you have to look at the indirect evidence or you have to look at the evidence that isn't there mm -hmm. to draw the conclusions about what your answer is. And so um, I feel like Marsha got some great examples in this book. And, you know, what she says is 
that the most effective strategy is to not keep looking for a magic document, but to gather as much information as possible, like we were talking yeah. about before. You just got to carefully examine every record, look at it all in context together, and also looking for that circumstantial evidence that will help you establish relationships among people. Mm-hmm. And, and citing those sources every step of the way so that you can go back when the discrepancies pop up, you can go back and reference the original document and uh, follow the trail and make sure things are still fitting. You know, all great examples. And I think it's actually really reassuring that Marsha found that these were so common that, that they were worthy of putting in the book, which means I think all of us can read a book like this. And it will help us identify in our own research areas where we might be getting a little bit uh, off track, or, you know, a little used to doing things one way and realizing there are other there are other options out there. And I, I think we can always benefit from that. Absolutely. We all need keys to help solve our problems. And this book has got lots. Awesome. Well, the book we're talking about is Family Tree Problem Solver. It's over in uh, Shop Family Tree. Thank you so much for sharing some of your favorites. I'm glad to hear that uh, we all struggle with the same issues and that there's lots of answers out there. Thanks so much for uh, visiting with the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me for this March 2014 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and check out Diane Haddad's Genealogy Insider blog and the full article that we talked about here on the show today. You'll find the blog at blog.familytreemagazine.com slash insider. And don't forget to carve out some time to check out the DPLA. You will find it at dp.la. And that is certainly where I am headed. And of course, you can go to familytreemagazine.com slash podcast to find the show notes for this episode, which will include information and website links for everything that we covered, including the new Family Tree German Genealogy Guide by Jim Beidler. David Frixell's Unpuzzling County Boundaries On Demand webinar, and the book by Marsha Hoffman Rising called Family Tree Problem Solver. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems Podcast, which is also available for free in iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. Epigenealogy, providing research services to trace your family's health history. Your family history might be one of the strongest influences on your own health risks for many types of disease. With knowledge, you have the most to gain from lifestyle changes and health screenings. Visit their website at epigenealogy.com to get started on your journey of identifying your family's health risks.